0: How do you do that in a culture that's hostile? Here it is. Let's go back to Peter for a minute. What did Peter say? He said, "Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as always. Again, back to the heart. Peter learned from his brother. you have a sincere heart in honoring the Lord? because if you don't, you will never take a courageous stand for Christ. You will never bring others to Christ. You will never tell others the truth that unless they believe in Christ, they will die in their sin. You will never have the fortitude in the midst of cultural pressure to continue to meet for worship and to continue worshiping the Lord regardless of what any government says. Peter says, don't be afraid. Honor Christ the Lord always in your heart. And then he says this, always be prepared. To make a offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Just be ready. That's all you have to do. Just be ready. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville, and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant, intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons as well as articles in a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. I want us to take God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. And uh, as you know, we are studying the lives of the apostles. We're sort of giving a biographical sketch of each one of the apostles. And uh, I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to begin reading in verse 13. This is our text. We're going to focus on just one apostle this morning, the apostle Andrew. I call him the apostle of contentment but I want to begin reading in verse 13. Hear the Word of God. It says, And he, referring to Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed Him. This is the Word of God. Please be seated and let me bow for prayer. Father, we come to this time and this place to study Your Word and we know that apart from Your blessed Holy Spirit enabling us to understand these words, we will not have ears to hear what You would tell us. So we pray You would prepare our hearts to receive Your implanted Word that we might be changed. Lord, as we study the lives of these apostles, Lord, we're studying the work of grace that You wrought in them, which is a reminder of how You are at work in our hearts and our lives. Help us to see that, help us to be yielded to you as your servants with hearts full of devotion on fire for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the risk of, I guess, being misunderstood, we have been looking one by one at the lives of each one of the twelve apostles. We began last week, and last week I wanted to go over all twelve of these apostles and We only made it through three of them and so I sat down Monday morning, really Sunday afternoon to consider how many more apostles we would discuss for this Lord's Day and by the end of the week it became clear I could not go beyond one. So we're just going to discuss one here this morning. I hope, however, that you don't view this as a tedious thing. I hope that you don't misunderstand what we are trying to do. Uh, This is anything but an elevation of man. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We are elevating God and His glory because we are focusing on the grace of God to change sinners to become valuable instruments by God's grace. Indeed, we have spent more time uh, discussing the failures of these men rather than their successes, which quite naturally does anything but elevate them and does everything to elevate Christ beginning with Peter's failures, which are the most public. Some of the others and their failures you have to search for a little bit harder. But to begin this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, because in speaking about Peter, Peter lays down an important principle that I think helps guide our study when we're talking about the gifts that God gives to different people and the way God uses His various saints. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. You're familiar with this. Peter says, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, "...as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen." It's pretty critical, and I think that we see really three things here that Peter is trying to tell us. First of all, Peter is telling us that we are stewards of God's grace in our service to Him. Peter is clear here that a Christian is not gifted naturally, but is gifted supernaturally. And Peter even says we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is to say that God made us who we are by His grace. God gifted us how He did according to His grace. Our gifts, our talents, our opportunities for service are not our own, they are God's. We are stewards of this manifold grace of God. Second, Peter's telling us that we are stewards of God's grace, not only to serve Him, but to serve others. Peter says, he's very clear here, that in serving God we are also, let me quote him, serving one another as good stewards. So that service to King Jesus is not about ourselves, first, because we do it unto God, secondly, because we do it unto others, and that is, is it not the fulfilling of the law of God, love of God and love of neighbor? Third Peter is teaching us that not only are we stewards of God's grace in our service to Him and stewards of God's grace in our service to others, but we are stewards of God's grace to Him and stewards of God's grace to others by the power of God. Peter says that whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving, note it, by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom alone belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me just say, this series is not about the greatness of man, it's about the greatness and the glory of God. It's like Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 4.7, we need to ask ourselves these questions. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we did receive it, why do we boast as if we have not received it? Everything that we are is a result of God's grace in our lives. And yet, the Apostle Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 11.11, 11, Be imitators of me, just as I also am a, an imitator of Christ. We have a command here by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 11 to imitate the godliness that we see in the lives of other men, specifically the Apostles, specifically the Apostle Paul. We are commanded to emulate the saints. We are commanded to emulate the Apostles. simple question is, how can we emulate them if we don't study their lives? How can we emulate them if we don't see their strengths and their weaknesses? with well, the view to imitate the Christ-like qualities that we find within them. Paul commands us to imitate them. Because we, we need real-life examples of those who have strengths and weaknesses and how God overcame all of that to manifest before the world a vessel for honorable use. So our biographical sketches of these twelve apostles is a matter of obedience, the way I view it, 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of Christ, be imitators of me, Paul says. I think this frees us from any sort of man worship or misunderstanding of what we're trying to achieve through this study. And with that in mind, we want to look at the life of one man in particular this morning, and that is a man by the name of Andrew. I call Andrew the apostle of contentment. We've already looked at Peter and James and John last week, these men were part of Christ's inner, inner circle. I say that because Andrew was part of Christ's inner circle. He was part of the first subgroup of four, but he was sort of on the outside of the inner circle looking in. There are four lists of the apostles in the Bible. All four of these lists list the apostles in three groups of four. The first name in each one of those groups never changes. The ordering of each group never changes, but the names in each of the groups will vary to some degree. Andrew is always joined with Peter, James, and John in that first subgroup, but he is the last to be mentioned among Christ's inner circle. I have often wondered what he thought about that. The Bible doesn't say In fact, there's no indication in Scripture that he was embittered toward Christ at all because of this. This is why I call him the Apostle of Contentment. He's sort of like the last kid that gets cut from the sports team. He's like the one who makes it all the way to the last interview with scores of people being interviewed, and it comes down to him and the other guy, and the other guy gets it, not him. He's always on the cusp of success, always on the brink of having success. More intimacy with Jesus, but never rising to the same level of intimacy that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus. Andrew was not at the transfiguration. He was the only one of that inner circle, that first subgroup, that was excluded from that. And it wasn't just the transfiguration, but it was also, we read in Mark chapter 5, the raising of Jairus' daughter, which Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and left Andrew out. And also in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Jesus is praying. He left all the disciples alone, but He took Peter, James, and John along with Him a little bit further. Why was this? Well, perhaps it was because something was deficient in Andrew's character. Scripture doesn't say... But I think it has more to do with the secret providence of God. Deuteronomy 29.29 simply says the secret things belong to the Lord. We are not privy to why God gifts others better than us. We are not privy, privy as to why others have greater opportunities than us. We cannot worry about that. But like Andrew, we must serve our king with our heads down moving forward and doing so faithfully to the glory of God. Andrew is the apostle of contentment. He epitomizes 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain, no matter who recognizes us or not. This was Andrew. So I want to spend one sermon on him because as the apostle of contentment, I think that he can teach us some things about contentment. If there is one thing that Christians struggle with, all Christians, it's contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, the great Puritan, once said, and I quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I think that sums it up well. There is something attractive here about Andrew that we don't see in the other 12. Apparently, he doesn't mind being left out. He's not part of the rat race of climbing over others to try to get to the top. He knew his gifts. He knew God's providence in his life, his place on this earth. He embraced all of that to the glory of God. Andrew did not make it about Andrew. He made it about the glory of God. He led less by words and more by example. And I have often wondered what the church would look like today if we had more Andrews in the church, those who served where and when and how they could without causing problems and doing all to the glory of God. This led Matthew Henry, speaking about contentment, to say, he is much happier that is always content, though he has ever so little, than he who is always coveting, though he has ever so much. I don't think Andrew's contentment, however, came easy. He had to learn to be content. Let's not forget, to begin with, that he always lived in the shadow of his older brother, Peter. Everyone knew Peter because Peter, to put it quite frankly, was a loudmouth. And interestingly, in almost every indication or notation of Andrew in Scripture, he's not simply referred to as Andrew, he's referred to as Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. Uh, almost as if to say you wouldn't know who I was talking about unless I said this is Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. This had to mess with Andrew's head. To be left out of the things that your closest friends and brother were part of, the other eight apostles, they weren't part of the first subgroup. They were used to being left out of things. They were the ones that were often doubting and saying ridiculous things. They were used to being left out of things. But for Andrew, who was part of that first subgroup, to be so close to Jesus, but yet never be as close as Peter, James, and John during Jesus' earthly life. I think about those incidents when Andrew was left out, how awkward that must have been for him. The others may be mumbling under their breath, why was Andrew left out again? Maybe Andrew himself even saying to himself, I just want to spend more time with my Lord. We don't know. We don't know why Jesus often left him out, but we know that Andrew was content in that. I think all of this is a reminder to us that we often don't understand God's providence, do we? It is, I think, okay to ask why regarding God's providence so long as we don't demand an answer. God has a reason for His ways and His providence Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who are we to question God? Who are we to question who we are, the place that we have in life, the spouse God gave us, the family God gave us, the gifts God gave us, the way we look, all of those things, we aren't to question that. We are to be content. We aren't to covet. We aren't to lust. We aren't to have evil desire for what we don't have. We aren't to have the grass is always greener on the other side mentality. The prophet Isaiah says, Quoting God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, the test in the midst of mysterious providence is, will we still have faith to trust the Lord knows what's best for us? That's Proverbs 3, right? Trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Who was Andrew? Well, we've already noted that he was brothers with Peter. He was part of that same family. He was a fisherman like Peter. They were from Bethsaida, but they moved to Capernaum to set up their headquarters for fishing. And that's when the Lord called them, and they then opened their home Jesus to serve as His headquarters for His greater Galilean ministry. I say their home because you might not realize it, but it wasn't just Peter's home. The Bible refers to Peter's home as Simon and Andrew's home. It's given credit to being Peter's home because Peter lived there with his wife and his child, but really it was Peter and Andrew who moved there to set up their fishing business together. Andrew and Peter grew up with the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, James and John. These boys grew up together. They took part in the same things, the same fishing business, working together. And when they got into later adulthood, it was Andrew who was always left out of everything. And yet, Andrew learned to be the apostle of contentment. Again, I don't think I'm belaboring the point because interestingly, in the listing of the twelve here in Mark chapter 3, Andrew is listed last. He's not even listed in the same verse, though granted, verse divisions were put later. But notice it it mentions Simon first, verse 16. Then James, the son son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. And then verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew. I mean, Andrew is, is almost listed with the others and not with the first four in the way that Mark describes him. And almost unnaturally, Mark does not list... Peter and Andrew together. They were brothers. Mark mentions James and John together because they are brothers, but he mentions Peter, skips over Andrew, goes to James and John, and then lists the rest. You could maybe therefore call Andrew the forgotten apostle. Always left out of things. And this is not all. Luke, in his account of the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Luke chapter 5 when they are fishing and Jesus walks along the shore of Galilee to call these men. In Luke chapter 5, Luke doesn't even mention that Andrew's there. We know he's there from Mark chapter 1. He worked with Peter in that fishing business. James and John worked in their business with their father. Why does Scripture do this? We know that Mark writes as not an eyewitness, he's borrowing Peter's eyewitness experience of the life of our Lord as he writes this gospel. But there's no vendetta that Peter has against his brother Andrew. Luke had no vendetta against Andrew. Mark and Luke are making a point. What is the point? Well, the point is, according to God's providence, Peter and James and John would have far more prominent roles in the kingdom than Andrew. That's the point to see. In fact, Andrew is only mentioned a whopping nine times in all of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke hardly mention him at all. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts as a central player in the church. He wrote no New Testament epistle. He didn't author a gospel. We have no recorded sermon of Andrew though we know he preached. We have to go all the way to John's gospel really to learn anything about him. He was, in almost every conceivable way, the polar opposite of his brother Peter. Peter was loud, Andrew was quiet. Peter was sometimes self-seeking, Andrew was always self-sacrificial. Peter was strong, Andrew was submissive. Peter was domineering, Andrew was distant. Peter was haughty at times. Andrew seemed to always be humble. Peter arrogantly declared to the Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll be the last one to die with you. I'll never leave you. James and John vied for a position of prestige in the kingdom, even having their mother go to bat for them. And there's Andrew, remaining quietly in the background, entirely content with his place in God's kingdom. We know, according to the early church historian Eusebius, who lived 200 years after Christ, that Andrew labored and ministered in Scythia. He was a faithful preacher there. Scythia was located north of the Black Sea. His current day, southeastern Europe. And Andrew is the patron saint of a number of countries, beginning with Scotland, Russia, others. The Castillo de San Marcos fort in St. Augustine has a flag rising above its fortress that has a white background and a red X. That is the cross of Andrew, St. Andrew. The Apostle Andrew, quiet, unassuming, forgotten, living in the shadow of his brother. This morning I want to sort of Bring him out of the shadow and bring him into the light so that you can learn something of the Christ-like qualities that he had. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to imitate the apostles. What can we learn from Andrew? He is the apostle of contentment, so he therefore has the secret of contentment. He was content with the gifts God granted him, the opportunities God granted him. He reminds us that every disciple of Christ should be a person of contentment. And Andrew also shows us what sort of life true contentment produces. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to suggest to you that Andrew's contentment in Christ produced three qualities. Three qualities that I think every believer who learns to be content in Christ can possess. Contentment, I think, is liberating. It frees us to serve Christ with vain glory, self-seeking interests. A.W. A. W. Pink once said that contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the soul's enjoyment of that peace that passes all understanding. It is the outcome of my will being brought into subjection to the divine will. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. You want contentment in your life as a Christian. How can you... Acquire it. Andrew's contentment in Christ was learned, and when he learned to be content, it produced three qualities. The first quality that Andrew's contentment in Christ produced was what I want to call a consistent service to Christ. A consistent service to Christ. I've already said that Andrew was faithful and consistent He was immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He did not allow bitter jealousy, strife to interfere with the service to the king. He lived in the shadow of his older brother being left out. He didn't seem to be bitter about that. He often did not seem to be concerned about what so many of the other apostles were concerned about, and that is selfish ambition, which seemed to dominate this group of disciples over and over and over again in Scripture, but not Andrew. He had a persistence. He had a consistency that marked his life that I want you to see from the pages of the Bible. And his persistence in serving Christ, even while being overlooked, is amazing, especially because especially because, when we consider the fact, you might not know this, but apparently he was the first disciple to follow Christ. And yet he's overlooked more than any of the others, considering his position in line. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1 to see this calling of Andrew. We need to go to John because Mark says precious little about Andrew. While you're turning there to John chapter 1, the name Andrew means manly and strong. Now, I'm not saying that because that's my name, but my name is Andrew. But... Andrew, although he was a fisherman and he cast a net onto the lake which required great physical strength, he was a man with great spiritual strength and conviction. It should be noted that he was a follower of John the Baptist. We read about that here in John chapter 1. Verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. The two disciples are Andrew and the Apostle John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is Andrew and John. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. Andrew and John did that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We know the other one is John because John doesn't refer to himself in his own gospel. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he was there. Verse 41 says that Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is Andrew. He is a follower of John the Baptist. And it took a man's man to follow John the Baptist, a man who ate locusts and wild honey, a man who was rugged in his convictions. This is Andrew, a fisherman. But Andrew also had a tender and a gentle spirit. He approaches Jesus After John points to Him as being the Lamb of God, he meets with Jesus along with John, says in verse 39, at the tenth hour, that would have been about four o'clock. So from four o'clock until the end of the day, they stayed with Jesus and they conversed with Jesus. And by the end of that conversation, Andrew was convinced this was the Messiah. And the first thing that Andrew did was to go and get his brother Peter, the one who would become the preeminent apostle, the one that would overshadow Andrew. It was Andrew that took Peter to Jesus. And he says to him, not I have found the Messiah. He says, no, we have found the Messiah, crediting John who was with him. Andrew was never about vainglory. The first disciple to follow Jesus the first disciple to recruit someone else to follow Jesus, and yet he was forgotten often. Andrew knew that his more dominating brother would probably get more attention. That didn't stop him from being excited to point his brother to the Messiah, to point his brother to the One who he knew could take away the sins of the world according to John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. Aside from his zeal to bring others to Jesus, beginning with his brother, we know that Andrew, and we'll see this a little bit later, really lived out a principle that's found in Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six and verse six. Paul says, well, beginning in verse five bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. We sang about a sincere heart this morning, being on fire for the Lord, devoted to God. That was Andrew. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That epitomizes Andrew. He did everything from the heart, everything from sincerity, not to be an eye pleaser, but to be a God pleaser. Because sincerity breeds contentment in our kingdom service. Contentment breeds consistency. That is what gave Andrew the consistency and the perseverance in his service to King Jesus. It was a contented spirit that was rooted in a sincere heart. The greatest key to contentment is to be sincere. It is to be who you are. It is to be who God made you. It is to use the gifts God has given you. It is to embrace that. It is to accept that. It is to use that to the fullest possible potential by the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. The duty is yours. The consequences are God's. That's a sincere heart devoted to God. Effectiveness in serving Christ is always determined by sincerity and devotion of heart. Faithful service is not measured regarding how big your gift is. You can't control that, but by how big your heart is. Not how prominent you appear. You shouldn't worry about that anyway, but how sincere you are. Otherwise, what's motivating your service to Christ? I'll tell you this. If you run on the fuel of vainglory, you will stall and you will stop and you will lack strength to persevere when things get hard. Perseverance, consistency in serving Christ is rooted in a sincere heart, devoted to God, not self, wanting to honor the Lord. This was Andrew. He was content because he embraced who he was and who God made him without questioning that. One writer says the following. Gathering together the traces of character found in Scripture about Andrew, we find neither the writer of an epistle, nor the founder of a church, nor a leading figure in the apostolic age, but simply an intimate disciple of Jesus Christ, ever anxious that others should know the spring of joy and share the blessing he so highly prized. A man of moderate endowment, simple minded and sympathetic without either dramatic power or heroic spirit, yet with that clinging confidence in Christ that brought him into that inner circle of the twelve, a man of deep religious feeling with little power of expression, magnetic more than electric, better suited for quiet walks of life than the stirring thoroughfares. Andrew is the apostle of the private life. End quote. A man who minded his own business Put his head down, worked to the glory and the honor of God. He wasn't a man pleaser, he was a God pleaser sincerely from his heart, and that's why he was consistent in his service to God when the other apostles were unbalanced. I think contentment is illustrated well in the story of the man who didn't have contentment. He had covetousness in his heart, and he became envious of his friends because they had larger and more luxurious homes than he had. So he listed his house with a real estate firm planning to sell it and to purchase a more impressive home. As he was wallowing in his discontent shortly thereafter, he was reading the classified section and he saw an ad for a house that seemed just right. So he called the realtor and he said, I've found the house that I want in this ad. It's exactly what I'm looking for. I don't even need to go visit it. I don't need to go through it because I know it's perfect for me. And the realtor listened as he went on and on and then finally the man stopped and the realtor said, but sir, that's your house. The one you're describing. The one you placed in the ad. As if to say, what is wrong with you? Why are you not content with what you have? With what God has given you? Listen, beloved, if we have been given rich salvation by God's grace in Christ, that is enough to leave us content for eternity. Why do we worry about the things of this world, the possessions of this world, the money of this world? Why do we care so much about what other people think, status, status and prestige? Andrew didn't care about those things. He was used mightily by the Lord. Many throughout history have cared about those things, and there's not a sermon this morning being preached on them. Many of them, like the rich young ruler, died in their sins because they couldn't enter the kingdom of God out of a love for wealth and status. His problem was discontentment. His problem was he couldn't see that the only way you can be content is to find Christ. And I hope you know that this morning. If you're here and you don't know Christ, the only way you'll find contentment is to find forgiveness in Him. Eternal life. The Apostle Andrew found contentment in Christ, and such contentment produced, first of all, a consistent service to Christ. But there's something else as contentment produced. Not only a consistent service to Christ, but secondly, a confident surety in Christ. This always happens with contentment. Contentment provides a peace that passes all understanding. Contentment provides a confidence, a faith Um, a durableness in the midst of hardship. That was Andrew, no matter what curveballs hit him. There were times in his life, I guarantee you, that the Lord disappointed him from a purely human standpoint, being left out of all those special experiences that his buddies experienced, Peter, James, and John. But Andrew had a calm confidence in our Lord, perhaps a greater confidence in faith than all of the other disciples put together. That may surprise you. We see a glimpse of this in his bringing his brother Peter to our Lord. Why did Andrew and John meet up with Jesus first? Well, maybe because they had more faith than the others. In the next account I want us to look at, you're going to see that Andrew appears to have more confidence in faith than all the other apostles. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6 to see this account. Again, John is helpful and bringing Andrew out of the shadow of his brother Peter. John chapter 6. You're familiar with this account. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And there are many interesting things that happen here. I I can't point to all the details, but I'm just going to give you the highlights. John 6, verse 5, speaking about our Lord. It says, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, remember that name, Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, he didn't ask Philip this because Philip was smarter or because Philip had more faith. Verse 6, John's honest. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus didn't need Philip's counsel. My goodness. Philip answered him as if, Maybe the Lord did need his counsel. Wow, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip appears to be a very practical man. He's running the calculations, and he says that 200 denarii aren't enough for such a large crowd. That would have equaled, 200 denarii, would have equaled about eight months' wages. There were 5,000 men here, not counting women and children, so some estimate the crowd to be as large as maybe even 30,000. There were widows in this society, there were orphans in this society, and I can assure you that where Jesus was, there were children, and where there were children, there were orphans, hungry children. Philip is a pragmatist. He looked at the figures and he simply said to Jesus, this is not going to work. We need to come up with a different plan. This is not sustainable. He's a man of numbers, a man of statistics. I imagine that if there were graphs back then, he would have pulled out a graph on a scroll to show that they needed to find a different solution. Mathematically, this was not possible. That would have been his thought. Philip was thinking too earthly. He had little faith. Andrew knew, I think, that what was impossible with man was possible with God. Philip wasn't like that. Philip was one of those guys at work or on the leadership team or on a sports team, always pessimistic, always worried, always anxious. We don't want to give Philip too hard of a time because at least he offered a solution. He was trying to help, but what we need to see... Is that we need to look beyond ourselves and our abilities and trust in the promise of God's word and believe that when Christ is behind something, nothing can stand in his way. That was not Philip. Philip was short sighted in his faith. Jesus asked him to test him, specifically to test his faith, and guess what? Philip failed. He failed. And once again, Andrew's been left out, Andrew's not mentioned at this point. Jesus didn't ask Andrew what should be done. In fact, from Andrew's perspective, likely the other disciples' perspective as well, it appeared that Jesus was looking for counsel from Philip, and that could have raised in Andrew's heart a question, why would Jesus bypass Peter, James, and John, and me, and go to Philip for counsel? But we know, as verse 6 says, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. But the disciples didn't know that at the time. John writes that because John knows that at the time of the writing, but the disciples did not know that at the time. And if Andrew had been self-focused, he might have felt left out again. But instead, Andrew was focused on the task at hand. Jesus had not approached Andrew for his ideas, but Andrew, we're going to find out, would approach Jesus with a proposed solution. In fact, perhaps the one being tested all along wasn't Philip, but was Andrew. But notice the way that John highlights Andrew in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, you know, Simon Peter's brother? That guy. He was there. Verse 9 says, He came to Jesus and said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they? For so many? What are they for so many? Now, Matthew's account tells us that Jesus actually commanded the disciples these crowds don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. So, Jesus had a little bit of righteous anger because apparently. According to Matthew, the disciples weren't getting the fact that this was not a matter of sheer numbers and calculating things and just trying to get by with the job that Jesus had given them. This was a crisis, and what Jesus was trying to cultivate in the hearts of the disciples, they were missing. He was trying to cultivate a love for other people. They were so focused on themselves that they looked to themselves for the solution. Not Andrew. Andrew. His actions reveal not only his sincere and willing heart, but his confidence in Jesus. I think that he could see Jesus wasn't really seeking a solution from them. Jesus wanted them to come to Him for a solution, but they must first demonstrate faith in Him. And that's what Andrew is doing. Andrew gets to work. What is he doing? I don't even know if Andrew knew what he was doing, but he might as well do something while the other disciples are fumbling and mumbling around. Andrew's walking along the crowd and he's looking for food. He finds five barley loaves, two fish, takes the boy to Jesus. I don't know what the other disciples were doing, but Andrew's work ethic comes through here. He wants to honor his Lord. He doesn't want to disappoint his Lord. He might not have known what he was looking for and what he was doing, but at least he was doing something. I want to stop here and just say, as often how ministering the local church is, I think that's often how life is. Sometimes the greatest worship is just fulfilling your duty. Even when you don't want to do it, even if you don't feel like you're the best at it, you're the man for the job, you do it. You suck it up, you do it to the glory of God. You don't always know you're going to find a solution, but you trust God Andrew knew Jesus as he searched through that crowd was the true solution. He was simply trying to find a way to serve the king in the meantime, confident that at the right time a solution would pop up. I think that's the right way to view God's providence. God's providence doesn't sit back and say, Oh, God's have it, God, God has it, I'm not going to do anything. No. A robust trust in God's providence says, I will work to the glory of God until I die. I will serve King Jesus with everything my heart can give. Because I know He's in control. He's chosen me for this task, for this hour, for this thing, to do this. To be the best spouse, to be the best father, to be the best servant. All of those things. It's as if Andrew said to himself, I don't have an exact solution. I didn't run the numbers like Philip. Perhaps Philip is right from a human level. I'm just an instrument. God's called me to be faithful I'm searching for a solution, but Jesus is the one that's going to have to do the miracle. Until then, I'm going to give my best according to my time, my opportunity, and the resources God provides. After all, Andrew had seen with the other apostles that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Perhaps Andrew was depending upon that experience. Jesus is going to do something. He turned water into wine. Maybe He can turn this bread and these fish into a feast And perhaps he depended upon the character of Jesus that he had seen so many times where Jesus was so tender and so gentle with the crowds, while the Sons of Thunder wanted to call down judgment on others. The point to see is that Andrew had confident surety in Jesus. His focus wasn't on what he or the other eleven could do, but on what Jesus could do. And his walk through that crowd was a walk of faith. Faith. He was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord his labor would not be in vain. And it proved not to be in vain because Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish from that little lad's lunch and fed the crowds miraculously. This is Andrew. Andrew brought Peter to Christ. Andrew brought the little boy to Christ. I have a very hard time believing that boy walked away without salvation. He saw the faith of Andrew. He saw the power of Jesus. Here is Andrew, the content apostle, possessing a calm assurance, a confidence, a faith in Christ. Though he wasn't dominant, though he wasn't gifted as much as the others, his focus was never himself. He was content to trust in Christ. We don't see him complaining. About the other twelve, we don't see him griping about Jesus' stubbornness just to perform the miracle. He put his head down. He trusted in the Lord. He did what the Lord told him to do. Even though he didn't know what he was doing, the Lord said, find a solution. He began looking, knowing the Lord was the true solution. That being said, I think we also need to concede what's said in verse 9. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And notice what Andrew says, but... What are they for so many? I'll concede that maybe this was a degree of doubt. I mean, this is all we got. What is this? On the other hand, this verse could just as easily reveal Andrew's confidence in the Lord. Sort of a tongue-in-cheek comment. This is all I got. It's not much apart from your power, apart from your miraculous working. I think the lesson here is that the Lord uses those who are concerned about their duty and leaves the consequences to God. Jesus said He would build His church. Jesus said He would find the lost sheep. Jesus said He would save the children of believers. Jesus said that He would save the worst of sinners. Jesus said that He would bring healing. Jesus said all these things and Andrew trusted in Christ. Andrew had more faith, I think, than all the other apostles. He had a confident surety in Christ. Andrew is the apostle of contentment. And so far, we've considered that his contentment in Christ produced, first of all, a consistent service in Christ or to Christ. Number two, a confident surety in Christ, not himself. And number three, his contentment in Christ produced not only a consistent service to Christ and a confident surety in Christ, but a courageous sacrifice for Christ. I think of Paul's words in Romans 12 that we're to be living sacrifices to God. I think out of all the apostles, other than the Apostle Paul, uh, that maybe Andrew lived that more than the others. I, I know you might not agree with that. That might appear like a stretch. After all, James was the first one willing to be martyred. The Apostle John outlived all the other apostles. He served Christ the longest in the face of immense cost and persecution. Peter's boldness is chronicled well. When he came to the place of his execution, Peter said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like my Lord. But I can't help but think that Andrew, consistently over the long haul, was more sacrificial. Always bringing others to Jesus. His brother, the little boy. And not just that, but he brought the most unlikely people to Jesus as well. Turn with me to the last passage we'll look at, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Every time Andrew is mentioned, he's always putting others before Jesus. I think Andrew was the consummate personal evangelist. You want to know what personal evangelism looks like? What does it look like to share Christ in the community? Well, it requires care for others. It requires a noble character, otherwise people aren't going to believe your message. It requires a sacrificial approach to your personal schedule. Andrew had all of these qualities. Here in John chapter 12, we see that beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I think that these Greeks probably were Gentile proselytes. That is, Gentile believers and the God of Abraham. Why else would they go to a Jewish feast? They were Old Testament believers who were Gentiles. They were Greeks. And they had heard about the Messiah, obviously. And they had heard that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. So though they were Greeks and Gentiles, they were participating in Jewish worship, longing for the coming of the Messiah. And when He came, they wanted to find Him. Verse 21, they came to Philip. There's Philip again, always there, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Now, we don't know why they went to Philip. And I don't think Philip knows why they came to him because verse 22 says, Philip went and told Andrew. It's almost like you went to Andrew and said, I don't know why they came to me. They should have come to you. You're the one that can help here. Is it permissible for them to see Jesus? I really think that's probably what is behind here. When I study the lives of the other apostles, you think of James and John, the sons of thunder. They wanted to call judgment down on the Samaritan village. Philip probably had that mentality. Is it permissible, Andrew? I mean, I know that you're probably the most tender most relatable apostle you think Jesus would want to see these guys I think that's sort of the approach Philip should have known better Jesus Jesus talked and ministered to Gentiles in very tender ways in fact he broke every Jewish custom imaginable when he met the Samaritan woman at the well he was with her alone it wasn't a full blooded Jew and he spoke to her she was a woman I think Jesus is concerned about Gentiles. He welcomed the Gentiles. Philip should have known that. Again, short-sighted in his faith. But Andrew would know. And so verse 22 says, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus together. They went together to tell Jesus about this. And verse 23 says, Jesus answered them the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. It's been well stated that Andrew was the first home missionary bringing his brother Peter to Christ and the first foreign missionary bringing these Greeks to Christ. Always bringing people to Christ. What does it mean to be a witness for Christ? What does it mean to be a courageous sacrifice? For Christ, in the midst of a hostile culture, a hostile world that increasingly is growing hateful toward Christianity? Well, let's read the rest of this passage. Jesus said in verse 23, the Son of Man, it is time for Him to be glorified. Of course, before being glorified, that means He'll be crucified. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What are we doing today? We're honoring Andrew. We're honoring a servant. The one who didn't love his life. The one who hated his life to bring others to Christ. Christ regardless of the cost. Even when other disciples were doubting, should we do this? Like Philip, Andrew, was there, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the questions, bringing others to Jesus, bringing these Greeks to Jesus. We must do the same. Must do the same. We must be willing to suffer any shame, any scorn, any rejection. We must be willing to be misunderstood, ignored, be viewed as radical to point others to Christ. How do you do that in a culture that's hostile? Here it is. Let's go back to Peter for a minute. What did Peter say? He said, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as always. Again, back to the heart. Peter learned from his brother, do you have a sincere heart in honoring the Lord? Because if you don't, you will never take a courageous stand for Christ. You will never bring others to Christ. You will never tell others the truth that unless they believe in Christ, they will die in their sins. You will never have the fortitude in the midst of cultural pressure to continue to meet for worship and to continue worshiping the Lord regardless of what any government says. Peter says, don't be afraid. Honor Christ the Lord always in your heart. And then he says this, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Just be ready. That's all you have to do. Just be ready. If you are like Andrew, there will be unbelievers that come to you that ask you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And when they do that, Peter says, Do this with gentleness and respect. That is because, like these Greeks that Andrew brought to Jesus, Andrew understood they're created in the image of God. They're people. You meet them where they are. You give them the truth. You explain to them with patience and gentleness and respect the hope that you have, and you calmly trust with certainty and faith, the sort of faith that Andrew had, that Jesus knows His own, right? Jesus knows who His elect are. Jesus will be faithful to call His elect sheep in. Andrew demonstrates this sort of witness. Unbelievers knew who to go to. They went to Andrew. They went to Andrew to see Jesus. The best way souls are won into the kingdom comes through normal, everyday activity. Being faithful Christians in our society, in our workplace, in our home, In our schools, and then giving a reason for those who ask us for the hope of Christ that is within us. Andrew's legacy is quite amazing. It's still felt today. I told you that Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. And on both sides of my family, my mother and my father's side are deep Scottish roots. I remember going to a family reunion for my mother's side of the family when I was a little boy, and I was named after my uncle and my grandfather, whose names were Andrew Jackson. That was their name, Andrew Jackson. And I went to this reunion, and everyone that I met was either named Andrew Jackson or Jackson Andrew, some derivative of that. It was amazing, amazing the pride that Scottish people take in the patron saint, Andrew. Andrew's memory lives on sermon this morning is about Andrew, not because of anything great about Andrew, but because he was changed by God's grace and made who he was, he embraced who God made him, and he was used by God mightily to the glory of God. Well, what happened to Andrew? We're told, according to tradition, that Andrew was martyred in Achaia because he led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ. Apparently, he was also preaching against false idols. Gentle, tender, lovable Andrew was boldly preaching against idols because that's true love. And he brought this wife of a Roman governor to Christ. When the wife refused to renounce her faith, we read in historical accounts, She refused to renounce her faith in Christ. At the request of her husband, who was the Roman governor, Andrew became the scapegoat. But Andrew courageously told his protagonist that he would not have preached the glory of the cross if he had feared to die on one. So they said, fine, we're going to make an X-shaped cross and you're going to be crucified. They bound him to that cross with cords so that his suffering would be longer, he hung on that cross for two days. And even as he hung on that cross-shaped cross, he never stopped preaching, exhorting all of those that passed by to look to Christ, to place faith in Christ. It's amazing. X marks the spot for all faithful Christians like Andrew. We're all called to pick up our cross, follow after Christ, suffer for Him, Be courageous for Him, no matter the cost. When they went to crucify Him, He said that He coveted the cross and longed to embrace it. That was Andrew. Content with the salvation God provided Him, therefore discontent with anything this life could give Him, content to love others, content to allow the Lord to bless him any way the Lord wanted to bless him and leave him out of whatever the Lord left him out of. He wasn't a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. And that's why his name means manly and strong. Strong in spirit. We need more Andrews in our society. We need more Andrews in the church. Those who are sincere, loving, gentle like our Lord and also those who are willing to proclaim the truth boldly, unflinchingly in the face of hostility. I think more and more these sorts of people will go unnoticed. You think the media is going to uh, put up those who are suffering for Christ? No, the media lies to you. They're not going to tell you what's happening. You're going to have scores and scores of faithful people that you will never hear of that will potentially be martyred, persecuted. Will we be like Andrew? We don't do it for the vain glory. We do it for God's glory, right? We're willing to be forgotten so that Christ might be glorified. And yet, I can't help but think that if Andrew were here today, he would probably blush at a sermon given upon him. And yet, that's all the reason more why he needs to be spoken about because otherwise he may be forgotten. His example. So we brought him out of the shadows into the light. Not because of Andrew, but because of Christ and because Andrew forgot himself and made much of Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That was the way Andrew lived his life. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to imitate the apostles. Do we have contentment in Christ? And I, I would just tell you also that you can never find contentment in this life apart from knowing your sins are forgiven and that you have the hope of eternal life through faith in Christ. Don't leave today without speaking to one of us about how you can have assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. The Lord can change you and He can make you into a vessel that's of honorable use, just like He did with Andrew. May God have mercy on all of us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this biographical sketch of the life of the Apostle Andrew, the Apostle of Contentment. We learn so much from his life and yet we learn so much about ourselves by looking at his life. We, we see, Lord, what we are called to be, imitators of others as they imitate Christ. Help us to be Christ imitators. Help us to be who you have called us to be. In all of our study of these apostles, we want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified. We want you to use your saints, your people, your church for your glory. We want to be exhausted in service for you, just as Andrew was. Help us, Lord, in our weakness, we pray. We love you, Lord. We pray now as we sing this hymn of response that we would do so out of the sincerity of our hearts, singing gladly for your glory, being willing to count the cost and follow you no matter what it takes, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.